Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today, my guest today is Timothy Baker, CFA, who is founder of Metric Financial. We will discuss banking and trends in the financial industry. Tim is a chartered financial analyst and chief executive officer of Metric Financial. According to his bio, he's a registered investment advisor dedicated to helping clients lower costs and improve results through factor investing. Prior to starting Metric, he held product development and strategy roles at, among others, BlackRock iShares, where he was product strategist in the firm's Smart Beta Exchange Traded Fund Group. Tim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's first start with banking, because banking right now seems to be the topic of maybe the year. And it's not just in the U.S. It seems to be spreading beyond our borders into Europe and Asia. So help us understand what is going on with these bank runs and these bank failures and how does this relate eventually to us as individuals and consumers of banking services? Yeah, it's it's an important question, Elena, um, and it's very timely just because this is really unfortunate timing for everybody. The crisis that really started with uh, Silicon Valley Bank out in California then spread to Signature Bank and First Republic Bank, and then, as you mentioned, overseas. Um, all of this comes amid a lot of market turmoil as the Federal Reserve has been aggressively raising interest rates to try and stem inflation. Uh, which has been going on for well over a year now. And in fact, I would argue to really make things simple for everybody that both of those two things are very much related. The significant increases in interest rates from the Federal Reserve over the last year and a half are really what caused all of the stress on Silicon Valley Bank um, as well as Signature Bank. The challenge is that Silicon Valley Bank is a very, as most people know, very niche business. Their job is basically to lend money to people that are businesses that other banks won't lend money to. Um, and so they have a very different profile. It's basically a bank that lends money to startups, and that has its own risks. But um, I'll stop there, and, and if you like, we can talk a little bit more about why those rate increases would have had such a significant impact on them. Well, it's come out, uh, I saw in today's news, that the federal government was aware of the high risk that Silicon Valley Bank was under as far back as 2021, and that some of the changes in the legal system and the protections that took place played part of a role here. But it seems that despite the fact that it's a niche bank, the underlying issue really is that there were so many unsecured funds in the bank. Uh, I think I read one just one of the businesses alone held $500 million in one account. How can you even regulate something like that to protect the bank and the consumers, the customers, from a bank run? It, it seems that our usage of banking is outstripping the infrastructure. Agreed. And and where that comes from is, as you probably already know, um, Silicon Valley Bank has this deal that they put in place where they will make loans to startup companies. But in exchange for being willing to make those loans, they basically tell the customers, 
and you have to have your your banking deposits with us. And so there was very little in terms of thought or control over how much people were depositing, right? As everybody knows, the FDIC insures up to 250,000 for a married couple up to 500,000. So if you look at a chart of all of the major banks in the US and the percent of their deposits that are less than 250,000, Signature Bank is like barely even registering. Um, less than 5% of their deposits were under 250,000. And so that's really where you got the major risk for them. So you think about it, banks have basically like two ways of making money. They borrow and lend, meaning they borrow from the Federal Reserve and they lend for mortgages and things like that. So you're borrowing short and lending long. That creates risk. But when you take in deposits that are in excess of those things, then you have to find money, find a place to put those funds and earn a return on them. So when a place like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, really any bank gets excess deposits, they basically go out and buy treasury bonds. Good banks, and this is why uh, some people are arguing that it, most people, there was actually a survey on CNBC yesterday. There was a poll that basically said, was this the regulator's fault? Was it bank management or some combination of both? And most people either said bank management or some combination of both. Very few people are willing to blame it on the regulators. So basically, the reason you would even blame it on bank management is because um, one of the keys to managing these things when you get deposits and you're buying bonds, you want to do something called match durations. And I know that sounds like Greek to people, but it basically means if you've got a payment coming due in March of 2026, you want to make sure one of the bonds that you bought, one of the treasury bonds that you bought is also coming due March 2026. So that when you have that payment going out, you have that money coming in when your bond matures. So basically the treasury is paying you back. Silicon Valley Bank, it was discovered, was not matching those things. And that's how they got in trouble. And when you had this spike in interest rates, which many people know, interest rates go up. That means bond prices go down. And that caused uh, Silicon Valley Bank all kinds of challenges in meeting those demands and refinancing their debts. So they became insolvent. Well, but all the banks were facing or are facing that same issue that you're describing regarding the bonds and the interest rates rising. The government announced what they were going to do, and then they've been doing it, albeit at a very quick pace. But everybody was on notice this was happening, and yet these are the banks, along with Credit Suisse, and now, I don't know if this is related, but the French government is investigating, uh, I think it was like six banks I saw yesterday, Bank yep. Paribas. And, 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 and the other big one was Deutsche Bank. All of them seem to be engaging in the same risky behaviors. It's, it doesn't seem, yes, that Silicon Valley Bank was in a niche business, as you pointed out, and Signature, and they were all... Also, the ones that crypto businesses have been relying on because they were the only ones that would work with them. Is that right? Well, correct. And uh, but back to my earlier point, and I know this is a very um, sort of ar archaic, arcane point to make. But yes, all banks are doing this. 
it's a question of how good they are at matching those things that I mentioned so that when you have a payment coming due, you're also having a bond mature so that those two things match up. What you're finding is that most banks, especially the bigger banks, were much better at managing and for lack of a better term, managing their balance sheet. Um, and so what you're finding is that you had these handful of banks that just weren't doing it as well as some of these other banks. And in fairness, because you just made this point, you know, you got people putting 500 million bucks into the bank, um, you know, Signature Valley Bank may very well have been a case of, quote unquote, growing too fast, money coming in so quickly that they just didn't have the, the time or the opportunity uh, to manage it the, the way they should. But there's also the underlying balance sheet, these much these much riskier loans. But so <clears throat> the one point that I've been trying to make, and this gets to your point about, well, all banks are doing this. And and my response being, you know, some banks are better at doing this. Some banks are better capitalized than others. My first reaction to this thing um, way back, you know, after that first weekend was understand that nobody wants this. Nobody wants in, uh, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic, any small regional bank. Nobody wants them running to their banks and taking out money to put it with ba Bank of America or JP Morgan or, or any of the other huge banks. Nobody wants a decentralized system. And that doesn't apply just to the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank. It, it applies to other banks, too. They need a well-diversified system for their own liquidity and trading. So that's why you saw uh, 11 banks step up and give $30 billion to First Republic. That was exactly what I was going to ask you. So tell us about First Republic and how that came about, because that seemed that this whole thing has seemed extraordinarily quick in terms of how quickly the government has responded from the beginning, from the moment that Silicon Valley Bank defaulted, as it were, and they came in, but also with First Republic and how quickly that came about and how these banks came forward. Tell us a little bit about how that was. Yeah, that was that was like light speed, um, you know, how, how quickly this spread and, and, and had things uncovered, which I think, to your point, um, is really my argument. And I'm, ordin <laughs> I'm ordinarily more cynical than this. But in this case, I actually think that everything that has happened since the first announcement of Silicon Valley Bank is actually an example of the system working, not the system not working, because this is the right. You wouldn't need the FDIC if things were always going to be perfect. It's why people buy life insurance, car insurance. You know, this is just federal deposit insurance. So First Republic Bank, I don't want to say that they kind of got um, you know, caught up in the uh, in the in the in the swirl of everything like Andy Cap. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, their issues had more to do with the fact that they were a regional bank. Um, they have a very niche uh, um, clientele as well. They serve very, very high net worth investors. Um, and so um, while while you had some questions about, you know, you see wealthy people at Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, my gosh, I got to pull my money out of there. Well, then I'm going to do the same thing at First Republic Bank. And so you had all these other banks step in and say, no, 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 we need the diversification and the liquidity of the system. And so it was those 11 banks that ste stepped up and sent $30 billion worth of deposits over to uh, First Republic Bank to shore up their balance sheet. 
So how does that work? Is there a commitment on their part to leave the deposits there for a particular time period? Was this just optics or is this substantive? Uh, that's a great question. I, I wouldn't have all of the details on like how those contracts were were put in place. I would imagine that there were for sure uh, time locks, meaning you're not just going to send them $30 billion and then a week later be like, hey, we want all those deposits back. Um, but what I would imagine is because um, I used to be an analyst, my part of my job earlier in my career, I was a, a financial statement an analyst for uh, for Citigroup. <clears throat> and so banks were one of the areas that I covered. Um, and banks, the, the way banks get rated, you were talking about Moody's earlier, Standard & Poor's is out there as well. Um, the way the way these banks get evaluated is on all different kinds of capital ratios. Um, and so I would imagine that those contracts look like we're going to send you $30 billion until you get these capital ratios in line with certain rating agencies, what the uh, FDIC and the Federal Reserve want to see, and then they might be able to get their deposits back. But that would be my guess. Without seeing any of those contracts, my guess would be there were capital ratio, like deposits to loans, things like that, um, that would dictate you know, how long they would be able to hang on to those deposits. According to an Associated Press article, I think it was from yesterday, and I saw it again today, on March 9th, depositors, this is at Silicon Valley Bank, withdrew $42 billion or 20% of the bank's assets in a day. What difference does regulation make if the technology and the lack of restrictions is in place that allows this kind of movement. Do all these things that we're talking about with banks putting deposits, for example, with First Republic or anywhere else among the list of banks that we're talking about, does, is it even relevant when this can happen? Well, and so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll actually answer that a little bit differently because when you talk about the regulations that get put in place, um, and you you alluded to the fact that um, and I saw the same report you did that said the the um, the federal regulators knew about this back as far as 2021. It raises the question, OK, <laughs> so why wasn't anything done about it? But more importantly, if that's the, and, and it and it maybe answers my other question, which which I asked on an, in an interview that we did this about about this the other day. Back in 2008, everybody recalls the global financial crisis. It was the unwinding of the mortgage system that crushed all of these banks and the rest of the economy went with it. And when the Federal Reserve just piled money into the system 2008 and 2009, one of the big issues that came out of that was from now on, there's going to be tightened regulation of all of these banks and we're going to have these regular stress tests where the Federal Reserve, the regulators go in and they evaluate all of the capital adequacy of all of these banks. Um, and based on those outcomes, they would they would regulate how much banks would be able to lend and earn that sort of thing. So if those stress tests were um, were put in place and were being executed properly, how would something like this happen? And for me, you know, because we do stress tests all the time for our clients. 
right? When we put together a financial plan, we put in stress tests for their plan over time. What if oil prices went up? What if inflation went up? What if interest rates went up? If you're the Federal Reserve putting these stress tests in place, how would the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates aggressively not be part of that stress test? So it's I'm, I'm kind of backing up your question with it's the same question everybody should have is how does something like this come to pass? And, you know, I think one of the challenges and it's probably not a very good answer, Elena, but I think one of the challenges is that we do live in a society that is, um, you know, particularly uncomfortable with um, the government on our back. Um, and so there's only so far that you can take these regulations without it's not the right word, but I'll say it anyway, revolt. Well, and where is that line between, because I'm not necessarily lobbying for one or the other, I'm looking at it as a consumer and as a business person, I'm saying we need some sort of a line in the sand, some sort of a protection, because we know that there are individuals that if they're not held within a circle, they're going to draw outside the lines and cause harm. We've seen this in the past and we're seeing it now. Let's go back to something even more basic. For the average person, you talked earlier about the limit, which is a quarter million dollars, 250,000 per individual account, right? Or a half a million for a couple? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, what what does and, that actually mean? Because it sounds like your money is safe. But I recall seeing a while ago, and I haven't looked into the details, how long does it take between the time that the federal deposit insurance company, uh, corporation, comes in and takes over a bank and the time that you, the depositor, is reacquainted with your money? Um, so you're hitting on a point that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I don't have statistics on how long it takes somebody to get their money once the FDIC has to come in. But um, I think we're both talking about the same thing when I say, uh, and I haven't looked up recent numbers, so I want to be careful about what I'm quoting here. But if you took all of the bank balances in the United States and calculated those that were under 500,000 for um, for married couples and under 250,000 uh, for individuals, the Federal, Federal, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, does not have the funds to cover all of that. They just don't. So if, and it's an extreme scenario, if everybody with those balances went to take all that money, or forget it, Let's say you have three hundred thousand, but but the government the government is insuring two hundred and fifty thousand. If everybody went to get those funds, um, there would not there would not be enough money at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to cover all of that. Where does that leave you in reality? What percentage? Let's look at it that this way. Is safe if twenty percent of the people take their money out and. Where would they put their money because they don't feel their bank is a safe depositor for their money? Then would they go to someone like you or like Fidelity or like Vanguard? Is size what's going to protect you? So technically speaking, um, it would be um, 
it, it, it would all boil down to the FDIC, right? So there's two organizations. FDIC covers bank deposits, um, SIPC, Securities Invector, In Investor Protection Corporation, covers investment deposits. Um, and so if you had bank deposits, um, and again, I want to be careful because um, I haven't looked up the statistic in a while, but when I did, I want to say it was something on the order of 20, the, the federal deposit insurance company, if everybody took all their money out of banks today, uh, the federal deposit insurance corporation would have about 23% of that money available. So I, I, I think you're, you make a very good point, but part of this is all of the other systems are that are in place, number one, believing that you have strong banks with good management. Um, and I was asked this question the other day, and again, it's rare for me because I'm, I'm usually more of the skeptic, but... Um, I do think I do think our bank system is run pretty well. I do think that um, at some point we're going to look back on this as a distraction. The Fed, we're going to get back to looking at whether or not the Federal Reserve is doing a good job of taming inflation. Um, and I, I do believe that we have a pretty sound banking system. That said, one of my biggest pet peeves is predictions and forecasts and all that stuff, because it's basically like saying, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? Um, you know, my email server went down this morning. I didn't know that was going to happen yesterday. Um, you know, so it. I, I think you have to, there is some level of faith in the system. Um, but then you do have, and, and Elena, you, you probably are making a very good point here about how limited they are. Um, but you do have some of these circuit breakers. You ask about line in the sand. The line in the sand, as far as the FDIC is concerned, is 250,000 and 500,000. That said, right, we're finding out now that everything is always changeable, right? In, in, in 2008, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, took uh, drastic, took emergency measures, um, and they said that they would do the same thing for the banks, and here they are, sure enough, doing that. And with Silicon Valley Bank, they said, we're gonna insure all depositors, even though that have more than 200, uh, have two more than 250,000. So, you, you, what you're seeing is in, in, and here's where the cynic kind of comes in. What you're seeing here is the, the, the regulators scrambling to make sure this doesn't become a widespread issue. If they had to ensure all of the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank or, or uh, Signature Bank or whatever it is, whichever it is of those banks, they'd be okay doing that. They just can't cover deposits from the entire system. So what they want to do is assure everybody in these couple of instances, hey, everything's okay, so that it doesn't spread and become a problem that they can't handle. And what cost is this going to have long term? Not just financial, which this obviously is having financial repercussions, but in terms of the strength of the banking infrastructure and, and the overall reputation. I mean, look at what's going on in Switzerland. People are saying, well, this used to be the elite banking country in the world. How can that be true anymore when there's only one of the big banks left standing? Right. Yeah. And it's um, that's kind of so there's there's two ways to think about that in terms of the costs. Um, the costs really boil down to access to capital. Right. So one of the reasons that um, people have been saying that the Federal Reserve should lay off their rate hikes 
is because this banking crisis accomplish uh, banking crisis accomplishes what the Fed is trying to do for them, meaning the Federal Reserve is trying to tighten up uh, the amount of money that flows through the system. We're a borrowing society, so if there if banks are shoring up their balance sheets by not making as many loans or not making as many risky loans, that makes access to capital more difficult for the average consumer. So a person who might have been able to go into the bank and get a motorcycle loan yesterday might not be able to get that loan today because these banks are are trying to be more careful with their balance sheets. So there's there's that is it will make access to capital um, less fluid and it will also make it more expensive because there is a cost to banks of complying with stress tests. And if what, what comes out of this is even more stringent regulation of the banks, then again, that accomplishes what the Federal Reserve is trying to do. It tightens up the system. It makes money flow less freely. And so that's why everybody became very nervous um, when the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates 0.25% <clears throat> despite this banking crisis, and the European Central Bank did it too. Uh, they did it half a percent, and the Bank of England did it a quarter of a percent as well, was, okay, these guys are fighting inflation no matter what. And despite this banking crisis, they're just going to keep hiking interest rates, and they're going to completely overshoot um, and so there's the risk of not only the cost of capital in the system, the cost of capital to the average consumer, whether or not they can get loans, but those loans may become more expensive as banks have to comply with these regulations. But there's another cost as well. And I think this is what you've kind of been getting at, which is, um, you know, lack of understanding or certainty in the system. And that creates volatility. And that's one of our biggest concerns is, you know, we, we tell clients, like I said earlier, I, I do believe this will wind up being a distraction in the long run. People should continue to focus on their goals. And this near-term volatility um, is, is, is a real cost uh, because in, in many cases, it will cause people to head for the exits at possibly not the right time. If everybody bailed, um, you know, when all of this stuff started with SVB and the, and, and the U.S. stock market really started to go down, um, they would be missing out on a pretty good recovery uh, since then. And the market is basically telling you, um, you know, that we believe in these banks and we believe it's a strong system. I just pulled it up right now. The S&P 500 is up 1% right now this morning. Um, and the NASDAQ, which is mostly tech and tech-related stocks, is up over one and a quarter percent. So I think you're starting to see some of the concerns ease in the markets. But that is a cost. When something like this injects volatility into the market, it has the potential to make people you know, react in the short term when, when they should be thinking longer term. I've heard something recently that I found baffling, speaking of volatility, this idea of a money market bubble. Have you heard this term? Yeah, I mean, you saw, you saw a little bit of it back in, in 2008. Anytime there's a financial crisis, you start to hear concerns about about money market funds. So how does that work? Because a bubble, as I understand it, is something that is overvalued, that is not really holding the value that people think on its face it has. Right. But it's 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 everybody rushing for cash um, and worrying about basically what we've been talking about, which is a liquidity crunch or a credit crunch. 
which is basically like putting banks and financial the and the financial system in a situation where there's less liquidity and um right the point of a money market fund is it is supposed to hold a $1 value a money market fund should have a $1 per share value and there's an old saying in this business um you don't want the money market funds to break the buck that's the saying and and basically what they're saying is as soon as you have credit issues hitting all of the the short term bonds that underlie these money market funds, as soon as that liquidity dries up, you might have a situation where uh, money market funds do not have a value of $1 per share. And that's also, uh, for anybody that recalls back in 2008, the Federal Reserve stepped in on that front as well um, and offered a backstop for money market funds too. So in practical terms, you're saying that people who think they have let's say $100 in money market funds may actually end up having less? Well, what I, actually, I guess I'm kind of, I'm implying that, but if, if, I, if, you, if you held my feet to the fire, I would say no, because, I mean, you're not going to know that it's worth less than a dollar until you know, which would be too late. Um, but I do believe that the money market system, the cash, the liquidity system is important to this country. And if you did have a situation where a money market fund was no longer worth a dollar per share, um, I think the regulators would step in again and, and ensure it. Well, how much stress is the system going to be able to handle? Well, right. And I, to me, I don't think we're dealing with another 2008. And we withstood that. And, and by the way, you're already see, starting to see, whereas 2008 into 2009, I mean, that dragged on for, um, you know, just about a year, a little bit more. Um, and, you know, this situation so far is already kind of starting to alleviate itself, um, you know, just in the last couple of weeks. You know, it hasn't worked out very well for shareholders, but, you know, my personal view is it's not the shareholder that matters. When you buy stocks, you take risks. And that's one of the risks you take. If you buy a bond, it's guaranteed. You're guaranteed that money from the company. When you buy a stock, you don't get any guarantees. You're allowed to participate in the upside of the company. And if you make a bad investment, then you participate in the downside too. So for example, shareholders of Credit Suisse, you know, they're all in rough shape right now. Um, you know, uh, union, uh, UBS um, bought Credit Suisse for a, a fraction um, of what the value of the company was prior to that purchase. What does this mean for inflation and the price of homes in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it, it remains to be seen. Um, if if everybody's kind of hope, you know, fingers crossed kind of thing um, comes true, then these banks will start to tighten up their lending um, and, and it will make uh, make it tougher for people to borrow. As far as home prices go, uh, they have proven to be very resilient. The, the Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates for quite a while now. Um, and for those of you, you don't have to remember back very far, um, you know, as, as late as late 2021, uh, you could get a mortgage for between three and 4% into early 2022. And now mortgages are, you know, between six and 7%. Um, so ostensibly that makes it much harder for people to purchase a home, but you've not seen home prices come down. Um, but that also, that becomes less of an interest rate issue and more of a supply issue. You know, you think about it as, as, as interest rates have jumped up, 
you know, let's say you've got somebody who bought a house three, four years ago and they've got a 3% interest rate. You know, what, why would I sell my house now? Why would I put my house on the market now? Because I'm, I'm going to have to refinance into a new home and get rid of my 3% mortgage and take on a six and a half percent mortgage. Um, so there's, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of, um, sort of a jam up in the housing system because higher rates have not caused prices to come down um, because it's really caused major supply issues where people don't want to sell their homes and get into a new, more expensive mortgage. Well, and also a lot of people are holding their cash liquid with the expectation that as the prices of homes drop, there will be opportunities for those businesses that want to invest and buy properties for pennies on the dollar and for those people who actually need a home and just can't afford the prices. Right. Right. So this is part of the money market bubble. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of the cash bubble. It's, and, and it's, it's one, it's actually, um, if you look at a a long-term study from bank of America, um, it's actually one of the issues that they use, um, as an indicator of, of bullishness, meaning that, that stocks will do well, um, is that cash balances for the retail investor um, are extremely high right now. Investors have really piled into cash as stocks have done poorly over the last year. Um, and that's actually their argument that <clears throat> they call it capitulation, um, is that you've seen so many investors get out of stocks that that cash has to go back to work at some point. Tim, thank you for joining us from Simsbury, Connecticut. Sure, anytime. Thank you for having me. And to our audience, you have been listening to Timothy Baker, CFA, who is founder of Metric Financial, who discussed banking and trends in the financial industry. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com. <laughs>